0: The food industry is working through lots of problems. According to the USDA, somewhere between 30 and 40% of all food in the United States is wasted. That's more than 100 billion pounds of food. And meanwhile, there are about one in 10 households across the US that aren't able to get enough food. But there are some people working in the industry who are hoping to take on these challenges. This is Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we look at the research and technology that's changing the way we eat and the way we think about food waste. Later in the show, we'll learn how meat can start with a single cell instead of, say, a chicken or a cow. We'll also hear from someone who's using research to fight food insecurity. But first... How can your leftover food scraps be recycled into energy? Brian Paganini is vice president of Quantum Biopower. It's a Connecticut-based plant that turns organic waste into renewable energy, and it uses a machine called an anaerobic digester. Brian, welcome to Disrupted.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me today.
0: Let's get right to it. I am fascinated by what you do, and I have totally no understanding of how it all works. And so I'm sure that some of our listeners are just as intrigued as I am. Talk to us about what led you to co-create this company and what drew you into this space. Yeah, sure.
2: So at, at our core, we are a food, waste recycling company. Um, We think of ourselves as the last line of defense when food waste uh, cannot be repurposed for human consumption or for animal feed. We are the stopgap between uh, those uh, interactions and the landfill. Our group endeavored upon a pretty lofty goal to bring the state of Connecticut's first commercial scale anaerobic digester recycling plant here to, to, to the region and essentially our facility, think about it as, as a giant steel stomach. And all we're doing is consuming large volumes of food waste, in our case, roughly 100 to 140 tons per day of food waste. And in a highly scientific, um, but uh, really innocuous form, there's a, billions of microscopic bacteria uh, within a large tank that's about 60 feet tall by 40 feet wide that are consuming these food waste streams and expelling methane on a, on a millisecond to millisecond basis. And in our facility, we are capturing all those methane emissions in enclosed conditions and using the methane as a fuel to power a generator that makes renewable electricity that gets sold to about 800 households within our given geography, within our, our community. So it's, um, it, it, it looks like a, a very industrial process, but at its heart, it's, it's just a big science experiment, which we're really proud of.
0: So I want to thank you because you made that seem so simple. It makes sense of how you get from point A to point B. But I'm also curious, Brian, about, you know, why start this here in Connecticut? Are we seeing a real problem with food waste in Connecticut? Or is this a space where you could innovate and say we are going to solve what's really a grand societal challenge and problem, and we're going to be in this space because we believe in it? Why here in Connecticut?
2: Uh, it's it's such a great question. So K- Connecticut, in, in our mind, is sort of the canary in the coal mine for, for waste. Connecticut produces about two and a half million tons of trash on an annual basis. And of that two and a half million tons of trash, 500,000 tons is food waste. So th- that's a pretty substantial amount of the waste stream that really prior to facilities like ours coming along, really had no place for recycling or disposal. Connecticut, out of all the states in the Northeast, is the most dependent state on burning trash as a means of getting rid of its waste, right? So as some folks in the audience may have been reading in the past several years, Connecticut has been shutting down its waste incinerators. And in doing that, we're not really bringing new facilities or infrastructure online to handle those waste streams. So again, principally thinking about the largest portion of the waste stream being food waste, facilities like ours really are serving as a means of creating a a really substantial solution for states like Connecticut. What also has been happening is states like Connecticut have been been passing uh, food waste reduction laws and mandates saying, hey, if you make a lot of food waste, such as grocery stores, uh, hospitals, hotels, convention centers, um, that then you must divert your food waste out of your trash can into a separate container and bring it to a facility capable of recycling it like we do here at Quantum. Kudos to Connecticut. 30 years ago, Connecticut was really the leader in the U.S. in decommissioning landfills in support of other means of figuring out ways to manage our waste. And we believe that Connecticut is on that verge again. And quantum is simply helping to, to supply some new vision and technology to, uh, to an age
0: old problem. Before we continue talking about quantum and the work that you're doing, I'm curious about you, Brian. You know, what's your background to come into this space of innovation and engagement, this really environmentally sound approach to doing it? And as I said before, solving these grand problems. How does Brian come into this work?
2: You know, I ask myself that question a lot. And sometimes I say, how did this happen? Um, I had a very nonlinear path. Um, I worked for uh, Pfizer Global Pharmaceuticals for many years, uh, ran operations in their group. And then we had our, our first child uh, in 2013, and I started to think to myself, I think I want to leave a legacy for our family and for the folks around us that has a little bit more meaning. So um, decided to to help to found Quantum with the mission of being you know, a little bit disruptive. I think that's apropos for this conversation and looking at ways of deploying new technologies to age and time-tested problems. So I, I think it was the challenge. I think the vision was always there. And for us, um, you know, we always and I always like to give credit to our team because we have such a strong and capable group here who has been with us from day one. And without them, uh, quite frankly, uh, our, our success would not have been realized.
0: What were the kinds of challenges that you faced in navigating to really ensure that you are remaining true to the vision and accomplishing these things that you set out to do with your team, but may not have been as straightforward and easy? What were the challenges?
2: Yeah, the the challenges felt like brick walls uh, for the first three years of the iteration of this startup, right? Um, There were many challenges. First and foremost was taking European technology and physically bringing it from the European market here to the States, because there aren't good representations of our types of facilities here in the United States. So I I actually had to spend time in Europe uh, going through Northern Italy, Germany, the UK, Denmark, Switzerland and physically working in these facilities to learn the intricacies of of this process. And then going back out to Europe and and actually procuring the equipment and the parts that led to the development of of this facility. So that that was a a fairly substantial, what we'll call technology hurdle, right? Um, And then apart from bringing technology to market, there was the regulatory side of of the permitting and the approval process, which you know Connecticut is is, is indeed a highly regulated state for good reason. Um, not an easy thing to say. Hey, I want to bring a new piece of European technology here to a state that's never seen this before. So there was a big educated process that we undertook. It took us about three years to get the permits to build this facility. So not a short amount of time. And, and then once we get a facility that we've built. Uh, We can't simply go on Indeed and hire uh, anaerobic digester operators because, you know, there wasn't any to exist. And and thank God we had, uh, you know, really smart folks at Yale and at UConn and at Southern Connecticut State University where we plucked interns and turned them into really sophisticated operators. And now we tout a first-in-class operations team that was built from the academic fabric of this state. Uh, And then finally, the biggest challenge I'll, I'll say was was building a business that previously did not exist here in Connecticut, right? The business of food diversion, food recycling, um, the operational mechanics thereof, and and quite and and the business matrix of of how you engage in relationships with very large customer groups, um, you know, uh, the likes of Fortune one hundred retailers, whom you know you don't maybe have a, a long track record with, and you're saying you know in a lot of cases early on, trust us, you know, we're going to be able to deliver on what we say.
0: I love that you talked about partnering with different colleges and universities, because just in those examples you gave, large public university, smaller Ivy League institution, all of these different spaces of young people pursuing interests that they may not have even known would be possible. What do you say to young people in this state who hear your story, hear your journey, hear what your company is accomplishing in a totally new space and are thinking, maybe I want to do something like that one day? What's your advice to young people?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I I was a UConn graduate 100 years ago. I'm a 43-year-old man now. And I will say, looking at it on this side of of 40, that um, there are a lot of opportunities here in Connecticut. Um, They may not be as apparent or as glamorous as those opportunities located nearest to Boston or New York City, but there are a lot of opportunities, particularly for burgeoning industries in the renewable energy and the recycling space. Uh, So I would implore folks who are graduating or have graduated just to kick a couple more rocks over and do a little more research because the opportunities are abundant. And one thing that we are and I am personally very passionate about is is keeping all that postgraduate talent and those smart and well-intentioned folks here in Connecticut because they are the vitality, the lifeblood of this, of this state uh, going down the road.
0: Let me ask you a very basic question, Brian. Some people may listen to this conversation and think that sounds really cool, really interesting, but why should I care? Why should it matter to the average person that we have such a large amount of food waste in our state, really our country, we have such a large amount of food waste, and this company is doing something about it? Why should that matter to the average person in Connecticut?
2: Yeah, at the end of the day, Lila, well, we, we get that question a lot. And I could talk about the financial aspects of it. I can say, yeah, it's the good and right thing to do. I could say that, you know, look at this creative, shiny widget we're operating at quantum. But really what it boils down to for me, and I, I can't speak for others, is is we're just trying to leave this patch of soil in Connecticut in a little bit better shape for future generations. Um and and I think for us, if we can do that in some way, shape or form, I think that's enough of a reason for the general populace in the state to, to just do something a little bit different that, quite frankly, is fun and exciting and is adding to jobs and helping to make a really good positive impact on the environment.
0: What else is on the trajectory as you imagine where you want to be in five years or 10 years out? What's next for Quantum?
2: It, it, it is so exciting what is down the path, right? Uh, Vehicle-grade fueling, uh, pipeline-grade fueling. Uh, you know, th- there are these advanced systems that we are considering sustainable aviation fuel creation you know sustainable aviation fuel is is an arena of transportation that that could use some some more stringent decarbonization. We're looking at materials production uh, Currently as we sit here today, we've got a wonderful relationship uh, with a couple of state universities looking at compost and soils production and how we uh, how we transition away from traditional synthetic fertilizers towards organic compost blends that are that are using the things we're creating from our digester and getting those materials back into a bag to a storefront so people can purchase nutrients that are that are uh cultivated here in connecticut as a a form of compost so they can sow their gardens and and flower beds so coming from the biotech space um i i am in awe on how much innovation there is and the tentacles of opportunity there are
0: Well, here's to more innovation, more disruption, uh, and more success. Brian Paganini is vice president of Quantum Biopower. It's a Connecticut-based plant that recycles organic waste into renewable energy. Brian, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: When we return, we'll hear more about cultivated meat. Some say it's more ethical and sustainable than traditional meat. And later, we talk to Katie Martin, CEO of More Than Food Consulting, about her work fighting food insecurity. This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare.
0: Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're exploring changes in how we look at and process food. Livestock contributes to about 14 and a half percent of total human greenhouse gas emissions. But some say there's an option that may prove more sustainable. It's called cultivated meat. Cultivated meat is produced without raising or slaughtering animals, and the process begins when a small sample of animal cells are grown in a nutrient rich environment. Those cells multiply, and eventually they form a muscle tissue that we can eat. Cultivated meat has been called by some as lab grown meat, but our next guest doesn't use that term. Joshua Tetrick is CEO and co founder of Good Meat and its parent company. Eat Just Inc. They're one of the companies making cultivated meat. Joshua, welcome to Disrupted. Good to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you about the work that you're doing with your company. And for our listeners, let's start with the very basics. What's the mission behind good meat, and what are you hoping to accomplish?
3: The mission behind good meat is to take meat today, which is slaughtered, which is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions. And all the cars trains planes combined it's to take meat that uh, because we enjoy it so much uh, ends up destroying uh, many of the biodiverse rainforests around the world and make it better make it so that it is free of slaughter it is free of the environmental damage but it still tastes like chicken or beef or pork or all the meat that Uh, We all enjoy, and I uh, enjoyed growing up uh, in Alabama. Uh, The process is called cultivating meat. Uh, And instead of starting with a live animal, you start with a single cell.
0: So you reference this as cultivating meat. And I know there will be people who will say, what does that actually mean? How is this different from a plant-based brand that some people may or may not decide they want to do? What's the key distinction here as you see it with your company?
3: yeah there are really three kinds of meat in the world today there's conventional meat which makes up 99.99 percent of the meat on the planet and that conventional meat comes from tens of billions of animals who are fed soy and corn that's produced on about a third of the world's land just dedicated to feeding those animals they're slaughtered after a short period of time in pretty um, poor conditions Um, And that's the meat that we all consume. That's conventional. Plant-based meat is when you take plant-based ingredients like soy or potato protein or wheat protein, you combine them together and you make a plant-based burger or plant-based chicken. And then the third and the newest kind of meat is called cultivating meat. And that meat is actually real animal protein. So very similar to the first conventional But similar to plant-based in that there's no slaughter involved. The environmental impact is much better. So cultivating meat starts with a cell from an animal. You feed nutrients or feed to that cell. So think vitamins and minerals, amino acids. And then you actually manufacture real animal protein, not plant-based meat, in a vessel, in a stainless steel vessel. And then after about a few weeks, you remove that meat that's been manufactured in that clean environment. And then you turn into some chicken nuggets or a hamburger, and then you sell it at a restaurant, which we do today in Washington, D.C., and a butchery in Singapore.
0: How did you arrive at this mission of, we're going to do something that lessens the environmental impact, maybe healthier for people? There are ethical ties to this as well. How did you come into this space?
3: Yeah, it really came from uh, the relationship I have with my best friend. Um, His name is Josh Bach. And Growing up together, uh, playing sports, and um, spent a lot of time with him. He really opened up my eyes to how the food that we eat for breakfast, um, that we sit down with our families to eat for dinner, has impacts far beyond what we feel at that dinner table. Um, And I started to get even more curious about it. Um, Where are these animals kept? What are they fed? How does the feed grow? What are the resources that go into all that feed? And the more you begin to pull the threads on the system, the more bizarre it is. The more you look at it and you ask yourself, like, what kind of system did we design here to feed this world? Um, and it, you know, it started to bother me. Um, it bothered me from someone who cares about not harming animals. It bothered me uh, because I'm someone who cares about preserving our environment. It bothered me because I care about just doing things in the most rational way. And about uh, about a decade ago, um, started this company to try to do something about
0: it. That ethic of care is important. But I'm also curious, Joshua, whether you have encountered resistance to this approach of people who are saying, no, actually, this is not the way to go. Or maybe you are disrupting the way that we've always produced mm-hmm. and consumed meat. What's been the resistance for you?
3: Yeah, well, I think there are a few things going on there. So one is, you know, the reason the reason why we do this is, it's very hard for for folks to stop eating meat. It's not easy. Um, wasn't easy for me to stop eating conventional meat. I, I grew up on, you know, getting off the bus at Chelsea Middle School and eating chicken wings that my mom made for me, and I miss that. I'm nostalgic <laughs> for that. I want that right now, like, even as I say it. And people, if they wanted to, could choose to eat um, more beans and choose to, you know, do away with conventional meat. But that that's really challenging. So the reason why we do this is to make the process of eating a better kind of meat easier. Um, and I think when we think about resistance, there are a few things that come up. One is, well, the way meat is made today is fine. Um, it's made um, on you know, sunny pastures with a red barn, with a a farmer holding his little daughter's hand who's collecting butterflies with smiling cows in the background. And that is a completely fantastical science fiction version of how meat is made. Um, If you're listening to this and you think that is how the vast majority is made, uh, please Think again, do a little bit more research, and and you'll find out that that's not the case. Now, there are some very thoughtful farmers. I'll give you an example. There's a company called Nyman Ranch um, who does a wonderful job in how they care for their animals and their sustainable approaches to meat production, but that is very, very much the exception and not the rule. Um, The second piece of resistance we'll get is, this just sounds strange this just sounds like some crazy stuff you get in a cell you're making a, like what's going on and I think the the truthful answer to that is, it does sound strange I agree it's it's if you've never heard about it before it sounds pretty strange that you could make meat from a cell um because we're so used to making meat in a certain way but a lot of things that we do that we thought were strange we now incorporate into our daily lives Some of your listeners are probably using chat GPT today. Some of your listeners are probably driving to work in electric cars. Some of your listeners probably microwaved their coffee this morning. All of those things some number of years ago sounded as, if not more strange, you know, than this. Um, And I think you have to compare the strangeness of this to the strangeness of the conventional approach also. And then finally, we'll get pushback of, well... This can't really taste like chicken or beef. And the easiest way to deal with that is just put it on a plate in front of someone and let them enjoy. And the most common feedback we get is this tastes like chicken.
0: Where's the United States in all of this? You are a U.S.-based company, but this is really a global challenge of how do we get food to people that is ethically produced or cultivated, but also addressing the sort of global issues around hunger and access. Where's the U.S. in all of this around regulation, around accessibility, being able to connect people's need for this to actually having it on a plate, on a menu, in a restaurant?
3: Well, um, Singapore is the first country in the world to approve the process of cultivating meat. And we received that approval in late 2020 and been selling in very, very small volumes in Singapore ever since. And more recently, we received FDA and USDA approval in the United States. And the U.S., um, with that, became the second country in the world to provide approval for cultivated meat. Um, So I think with that regulatory approval, the U.S. has really established itself as one of the leaders globally in making this happen. Now, ultimately, to make meat in the billions of pounds at a cost below the conventional uh, approach, which will not only be good for consumers and the environment, but also folks who can't even afford meat today, we'll need um, tens of, potentially even hundreds of billions of dollars spent on infrastructure. In the same way that as we think about what is necessary to transition to a low-carbon economy we'll need new transmission lines, we'll need new battery technology, we'll need solar and wind. You need a variety of different sources and infrastructure connecting people all over the world. You'll need the same thing for this new infrastructure and meat. So um, there's a role that the government has to play also in providing funding for that. Uh, For example, the Department of Energy through their loan guarantee program is looking whether some of the loan guarantee dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars of them could also be allocated to projects uh, of this sort. Um, I think the government is beginning to look into more um, R&D activities to stimulate the industry. Um, and I think there is a, a national security reason for it, food security reason for it. Um, and I hope you know, the US continues to to really want to to lead the way. And it doesn't have to Be, um, you know, uh, uh, a partisan thing at all. Uh, I grew up, as I said, in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I hope Birmingham, Alabama builds cultivated meat facilities all across the state and employs, you know, tens of thousands of people and is uh, more of a cultivated meat leader than where I live right now, California. Um, It's only partisan when people attempt to make it partisan to fit a certain political interest that they might have. And that goes you know, for both Republicans and Democrats.
0: How does your company help navigate that space to say, this is our mission, we're pushing forward with that. We recognize those political divisions or those economic concerns, but we are really mission forward. How do you keep that at the center of what you do?
3: Yeah. I think we do a few things. One is we just feel it as human beings working in a company starting with me feel it in a way that's not about um, trying to get something from it or convince or influence someone but just feel it in in an authentic way Um, and talk to people outside the little bubble that we live in talk to our family and friends many of whom um, you know, don't live and don't live in Northern California, but grew up in places like my head of communications uh, family did in in West Virginia, and uh, my head of marketing in Wisconsin. and that that's really important to feel it. And the second is to talk to lawmakers on both sides of the aisle and talk to them about the real benefits to their community, uh, to their district, to the country, of building a more resilient food system. Um, I think that has an impact, and then more broadly, speaking to consumers about it through bringing on uh, folks like Jose Andres, who is the first chef that we worked with in the United States to launch this, who is about feeding people who needs it. He's not about cultivated meat or plant based meat or this right. He's just about trying to figure out a way to feed people who really need. Food. So, getting him to be a part of this and to share, you know, why his heart is in it is is also really important to try to break down those artificial boundaries that people put up around us.
0: What do you hope is the future impact of this technology, but more importantly, of this approach? What's the hope?
3: Yeah, I think I want to look back in 50 years. Um, hopefully I'm still around uh, in 50 years, but I'd like to look back in 50 years and say that today, the vast majority of the meat that's produced doesn't require us to direct bulldozers, to knock down rainforests. It's not accelerating zoonotic diseases like avian flu, and it's not causing all this harm. Um, and at the same time, people still enjoying chicken people still eating their hamburgers uh people still still are enjoying you know uh their sushi that we figured out a way to meet the human animal where it is right is an animal who really enjoys eating meat but we're able to do it in a way that is much much healthier uh for all of us uh including all the the non-human animals that uh, that occupy this planet uh, with us, so that's where I want to get to. I think that'd be an awesome contribution. It's obviously not just us that's doing it. There are a lot of companies in the space, and a lot of policymakers, and a lot of activists that are a part of this push. Um, and it's a it's a multi generational push. This is not something that's going to happen in the very very near term. But actions that we take right now in the near term have big impacts uh, in the years ahead, and that's that's what we're all about.
0: Thank you for reminding us that we all can do something to play our part in moving forward in this ethical and healthy way. Joshua Tetrick is CEO and co-founder of Good Meat and its parent company, Eat Just, Inc. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. After the break, we'll talk about hunger in Connecticut communities and how one organization is joining the fight. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Before the break, we heard from Joshua Tetrick about the role that cultivated meat can play in solving issues around food security and access. According to Connecticut Food Share, there are more than 83,000 children across the state that are identified as food insecure. The percentage of adults in the state who say they don't have enough money to buy food nearly doubled from 2021 to 2022. That's according to Data Haven. Here to talk more about solutions to food insecurity is Katie Martin. Katie is CEO of More Than Food Consulting. It uses research to help organizations like food banks and pantries find new ways to fight food insecurity. Katie, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. It's so great to be with you. I'm excited to talk with you because the work that you do is really encapsulated in the name of your company, More Than Food. Talk to us a little bit about your background in this space and how it led to the creation of this work to really bring it all together.
1: Yeah, thanks. I um, I started early in my career being concerned about this preventable problem of hunger in our wealthy society. And I've spent my career primarily conducting research, developing programs, creating evidence-based programs to find longer-term solutions to food insecurity. And it's my firm belief that Even though we as a society have spent an incredible amount of time collecting and distributing charitable food to millions of Americans every year, we haven't solved the problem. And therefore, it takes more than food to end hunger.
0: I'm thinking about the earliest days of the pandemic and the very long lines that we would see of people driving up to get access to food. And a lot of people, Katie, were shocked and surprised that so many people, especially working people, working families, were still food insecure and still needed access to this. When we use the term food insecurity, what do we mean by that?
1: Food insecurity is worrying about having enough food. The way I think of it is not necessarily in the moment. We all get hungry sometimes before a meal. Food insecurity is more that concern, that insecurity that you're going to have enough food at the end of the week or the end of the month. And the pandemic really disrupted so much of all of our lives. And I think in some ways it was a blessing that people became aware of the systemic issues of food insecurity that were existing before the pandemic, they just became front and center with those long lines.
0: I'm glad that you use the term systemic. Because I think that is at the core of your work. These acts of giving, these acts of charity are important and they're essential. But if we don't address the systemic causes, and so much of what is in your work too is that there are multiple systems at play that create this situation where people worry about or fear if they will have access to enough food. Your new book focuses on food management. And so it's called Reinventing Food Banks and Pantries, New Tools to End Hunger. Talked to us about the need to rethink food management and what some of the tools are that you have seen in your work.
1: The goal of my book was bold yet simple. It's to rethink, reimagine the way that we tackle this preventable problem of hunger. And I stress that the charitable food system of food banks and food pantries. We're doing really good work. And particularly during the pandemic, we helped a lot of people. And, you know, it's really worth acknowledging, celebrating, highlighting that good work. But I don't hold back the punches. You know, I let folks know we can do better. And I think a lot of times there are folks that have been running, particularly the local food pantries that distribute food directly to individuals that are often run solely by volunteers, they may never have seen another food pantry. And so the way they do things is the way they do things because that's how they've been doing them for a really long time. And so it's important in my book, I talk about the history of how we got here as a society to um, having this very large national system, starting with Feeding America, which is the largest Uh, nonprofit organization in the country based out of Chicago. There are 200 food banks around the country and then thousands of local food pantries and agencies. And I highlight at the end of every chapter, tangible, practical action steps that folks can take in their community today. Some of them are, you know, very easy things that you could incorporate Things like converting to client choice where people can choose their food with dignity as opposed to the more transactional free bagging food and handing it to folks. An emphasis on healthy, nutritious food, ranking your food. We have national standards in the healthy eating research nutrition guidelines, but also really paying attention to those systemic challenges of why folks are coming to get food in the first place. So thinking more upstream in terms of advocacy policy changes, how do we advocate for more um, systematic changes that are going to make it easier for people to have living wages, affordable child care, transportation, health care, et cetera?
0: That notion of dignity and choice is so critical because it's what we all want. It's what we all deserve. And too often, people who are facing insecurity or need are treated as if they should just be grateful. I appreciate about your book and your approach is that this is really accessible. You know, we're both academic backgrounds. This isn't just for academics to think through theoretically. It's not just policymakers. It is frontline people who are delivering these critical services. It's an inclusive approach that I think too often it's either, you know, let's talk to the systemic people or talk to the people on the ground. Why is that important for you to bring these pieces together to really think about systemic change?
1: I really stress that the key audience in my book was folks, the frontline workers, people who are volunteering and working at food pantries and food banks. And that message, there's a lot that you can do today. When I talk about um, choice with dignity, to me, it is a gateway to equity and converting to full choice can be a game changer for food pantries. And those are powerful words, right? And I use them because when you allow people to choose their own food, it gives them power. And Unfortunately, particularly during the pandemic, when we couldn't let folks touch the food or, you know, it was not as, as possible and there were so many more people in need, choice completely went out the window. And I appreciate and I acknowledge that for public health concerns. But then, unfortunately, we've gotten into this habit. It's always going to be easier for volunteers to prepack the bags make those decisions for other people about what food they should bring home. And unfortunately, it not only creates an unequal power dynamic between the giver and the receiver, the volunteer and the guest, but it also contributes to food waste. That if you're given food that you're not interested in eating, you already have enough of, or you're not familiar with, you're less likely to use it. And then that goes counter to all of the mission and the values of why we do this work in the first place. So choice is is a really, really important first step that can open up not just that dignity, but it opens up more opportunities for relationship, conversations, hearing from guests that come to receive food. What are the additional challenges that they have. What are their goals? What are their strengths, their dreams? That can lead to more conversations about upstream solutions.
0: I'm struck by a couple of concepts you just mentioned. Choice, dignity, equity, and power. If affirming people's access is a way of affirming their power, The cynic in me says, well, now it makes sense why we haven't done more to really transform a system so that we don't have to talk about food insecurity or we don't have so many people. Because if people have power and they have dignity, they can exercise that. Is that just the cynical view, Katie? And if not, why haven't we gotten this right, given, as you said, the decades of research, the practice and the delivery that we know this is not an issue that is going away?
1: I think you're right to be cynical. I think, uh, you know, that's a lot of um, what I challenge when I talk about this work is um, who are we serving? And when I hear food pantry staff or volunteers say we can't convert to choice, here's the issue, here's the problem, here's the problem. I try to really stay firm and say, who are we serving if it's really because this is not as convenient or comfortable For the volunteers, you really need to reevaluate why you do this work. And if you're concerned that you can't trust people to choose their own food, well, then you really need to evaluate the values of why you show up to do this work. Because I know that people are doing this from the goodness of their heart, often from a faith-based perspective. That's fantastic. We need to lean into that. And then we need to really think, is that the best expression of your faith. If you're not trusting your neighbor, if you're not comfortable with them making those choices and having that power for themselves to maybe recreate what the pantry dynamic could be, you know, then we need to reconsider what we're doing.
0: Give us uh, an example or a tool that you see as a way to move toward improvement and transformation while upholding these values of dignity and respect and still navigating the very realistic, practical challenges that the system faces. What can we do? So a great tool
1: that I um have been learning a lot about from my wonderful colleague, Jessica Sanderson at Urban Alliance that's based in East Hartford, Connecticut, is called Motivational Interviewing. And Motivational Interviewing, or MI, is a strength-based, person-centered skill set where it's often used in social work, and it's an opportunity to ask a lot of open-ended questions to try to pull out from an individual, what are the goals and the dreams that you have for yourself? It's not my job to tell you what you should do, but rather I want to hear from you and draw out from you. What are your goals and your aspirations? It's a really great tool and skill set for volunteers or staff at an agency to understand what other services might be relevant to offer a referral but not assuming that everyone wants to enroll in SNAP. Not everyone wants to finish their GED, apply for utility assistance. It's more person-centered, tailored. And then the kicker is, as we think about organizational and systems change, we can also use motivational interviewing for organizations. So when we hear pushback and we hear challenging like, oh, well, we can't make that change because... We can use open-ended questions and, and pull out from folks, what are the values that you hold for your organization? What are your, what are your dreams and aspirations? How do we align those with these better practices that
0: I talk about? It's been now 20 years since I moved here. And I remember the reaction when I would tell people I was moving to Connecticut. Oh, it's so affluent there. Everyone's rich. You're going to do so well. There's such tremendous opportunity. And then I moved here and realized that that really overlooked the depth of challenge that people face across the states, not just in cities, in towns, but in rural areas. And what happens when the perception is everyone has what they need, then the people who don't have it sometimes have a more difficult time with that access. What's the picture like here in Connecticut? And how are we matching up against those kinds of principles and aspirations that you mentioned in the work you do with organizations?
1: Yeah, I think Connecticut is a microcosm of the United States, right? We are arguably one of the wealthiest countries on the planet. And yet we have systemic abject poverty in certain areas across the United States and in Connecticut. And to your point, I think sometimes it's harder to make that argument for folks outside of Connecticut but because they look at us, you look at county level statistics, we far exceed most of the social determinants of health, you know, nationally. When you drill down more locally into zip code areas, then you see the disparities. And a lot of times you see, you know, I love the, the framework from public health that you know, your zip code is more important than your genetic code. And you can have families living a couple zip codes away from one another and have drastically different health outcomes, life expectations. And and that's the reality. And that's in cities, and it's also in our more rural areas. And I think pride is a challenging factor for folks who Want to be able to make it on their own. We have this notion of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And it can be challenging, I think, for that stigma of asking for help. And again, that's where I love the idea of reframing, reimagining how we offer services. So it doesn't feel like charity, that it feels more of like this is a community market. This is, you know, a place where anyone can come. When you need help. And then when you don't need help, maybe you come and you give back.
0: We always like to give our listeners a call to action so that they hear all of these ideas of what needs to be done, what can be done. But the question becomes centrally what can we do? What can we do as individuals, as communities and groups to tackle this problem and really affirm the idea that it's more than just food, that we have to address the bigger systems and challenges what can people do to be a part of this
1: i always think it's important to to visit local agencies within your area if you're listening and you're already volunteering at a local organization thank you that's amazing work go visit other agencies in a couple towns over you know seeing additional agencies and what they have to offer collaborating with others is critical. When we think about how it takes more than food to end hunger, a lot of that is just thinking of how we talk about the issue of hunger. When we think about food insecurity, we're about to approach the holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas and everyone's first reaction is we should donate food. That's great. Let's pay attention to the nutritional quality of that food. Let's look at what are the food preferences of the folks that come to get those that food? Can you ask the guests that come to your agency what types of food or non-food items they would prefer? So if you're planning to donate food during the holiday seasons or uh, other times, ask your uh, local agency. Don't assume that they need peanut butter and SpaghettiOs. Offering services beyond food. So we all have gifts to share. Is thinking about, you know, if as we have this aging population, those in need know that there are services and resources available for you. So seek help if you need it. And then if you want to give back, if you're in a position where you want to volunteer, it could be stocking cans on the pantry shelf. It could be offering workshops, classes. Um, mentoring, budgeting courses, nutrition education, other resources beyond just the food.
0: I appreciate you for reminding us that there is so much that we can do right where we are. And that if we commit to that collectively, we can start to see the needed transformations that you talk about in your book. Katie Martin is CEO of More Than Food Consulting and author of Reinventing Food Banks and Pantries, New Tools to End Hunger. Thank you, Katie.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. This episode was also produced by our interns, Carol Chin and Stacey Addo. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening.